Thank you so much. Hey, when you go back there, will you tell Mrs. Fleming to come up here? And I invite Leslie Broadwater forward too. Psalm 150 says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So to Mrs. Fleming, the children of the children's choir and their parents, I have a gift for you. To thank you for your generosity and your sharing of your time, your talent, your gift, your love, and above all else, your patience <laughs> with, with our children and for teaching them to make joyful no noise and above all else, sing his praises. So thank, thank you. Definitely patience. Thank you so much. That was, that was really lovely. I'll invite you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our series looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. By rabbinical standards of that time, Jesus was anything but orthodox. Reports were coming into the religious leaders that he and his disciples were not honoring the Sabbath, that he allowed them to go and pluck grain on the Lord's day as they walked through the fields. That's not okay. There were reports that sometimes Jesus didn't ceremonially wash his hands before a meal. And certainly the rabble that he associated with weren't the kind of folks that a respectable rabbi would spend much time with, let alone eat with, associate with, or call friends. Gossip was flying that the eldest son of Joseph and Mary had lost his religion. The Pharisees, on the other hand, appeared to be ultra-Orthodox. They and the scribes were known as meticulous keepers of the law, and they took it as their civil duty and their religious duty to warn the people, this Yeshua of Nazareth cannot be trusted. He's setting out to destroy everything that we hold sacred. Don't go up that mountain. Don't listen to what he has to say. Jesus' message was so radical. His teachings of the coming of the kingdom of God, so revolutionary, so explosive, that even his disciples and certainly the crowd wondered, what will come of this? Is anything that we hold sacred going to last? Is Jesus the new Moses bringing a new law? And in that context, Jesus preached these words. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, you got a hold of the heart of, of Matthew and, and he was there to record these words and to pass them down from generation to generation all these years later. And yet, Lord, they are as important and as true and apply to our lives as much right now in our hearing them this day as they were for those first disciples. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts, that we would understand the centrality of your word, both the written word and your living word, in whose name we pray, amen. Do not think that I came to abolish the Torah. No, I came to fulfill it. From the outset, Jesus says that, that, that he has come to fulfill the revelation of the law and the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures we call the Old Testament. And he sets up the rest of his sermon after those introductory comments that we spent weeks and weeks looking at, and now he's getting into his, his message. He sets up with these introductory comments of his sermon, implying that what he's going to destroy is any kind of attitude of legalism that divorces the word of God from the spirit of God. The religious leaders were reputed to be guardians of the law, and yet Jesus is about to expose them for the hypocrites that they are. I haven't come to destroy, but to complete what I started. In one sentence, Jesus shows his whole approach to life. In the strongest possible terms, Jesus asserts the Bible's authority as God's written word and his own authority as God's living word. And here he's calling his disciples to accept both the written and living word as gospel, never to trivialize it or take it for granted. But he goes further. Look at verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He's saying that on the last day, when the world as we know it will pass away, until that day comes, not even the smallest letter of the law, which in Hebrew was a yod, in, in Greek an iota, not the slightest dash of a pen will be erased or removed or neglected or deleted until all of the promises of God are accomplished. Think of it. With his incarnation, his life, his teachings, his signs, his death, his resurrection, and his return, Jesus Christ completes the revelation of God. He makes it happen. He brings it into reality. And we need the Bible because that reality is happening right now. Jesus right now is finishing the incomplete masterpiece that was started in the Old Testament and, and, and spelled out in the New Testament and is spelled out now and is coming to fruition in the new covenant life. It's happening 
right now as we sit here. Now, I don't know how much you've studied the Old Testament or, or how often Pastor Andy's preached on it. He and I are actually going to a conference, uh, I believe in April in, in Chicago. Wonderful title, How to Preach the Gospel Out of the Old Testament. And we're going to come back fired up and ready to, to bring a great word and, and looking at the life of Abraham and Sarah to look at the gospel there. But by way of review, for those of us who may not be familiar with the Old Testament, we can divide the law into three parts. There's the moral law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law. The moral law is for all people. The judicial law was specifically for Israel, although much can be gleaned and influenced even in our own society. And the ceremonial law was for Israel's worship of the one true living God. So the moral law encompasses all peoples. It's narrowed down to just Israel in the judicial law and to the worship of Israel toward God in the ceremonial law. Now today, of course, we don't sacrifice animals as they did in the Old Testament because the, the sacrifices were pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And he's already come. Jesus Christ is the perfect Lamb of God, sacrificed for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law of Scripture. But the moral law of God is timeless. The moral law of God is based on God's character. Now you might say, well, they were written on stone tablets thousands of years ago. They've turned to dust. How, how could they still apply today? What are the first words the first words that the Lord gave to Moses, I am the Lord your God. I am the timeless one. I have always been and always will be. So thus saith the Lord, you shall and you shall not. The moral law of God is based on God's own character. It comes out of his character. It's our design for life. And so he says, do not commit adultery because I am utterly faithful. Do not lie because I am absolutely trustworthy. Do not covenant because I am the ultimate provider. God's moral law is the same yesterday, today, and forever, forever until that final day when Jesus brings a new thing. Look with me at verse 19. This is why he goes on to say even more exacting Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What happens to a preacher or a teacher who relaxes the teaching of God's law? Does she lose her salvation? Does a fork-tongued preacher forfeit his place in the kingdom of heaven? No, not necessarily. That's not up for us to judge. But Jesus clearly says that they lose their position in the kingdom. Instead of being called great, he or she is called least. And there are those among us who say, well, I'm a red-letter Christian, meaning I'm just going to focus on what Jesus says, those red-letter words, like the Sermon on the Mount. And he's saying to us today, if you're going to follow me, you must abide by all of God's revelation. 
If you are a follower of Jesus, you are now obligated to keep the teachings of the Old Testament, period. Now, the ceremonial laws that, that Jesus fulfilled no longer apply to us. Though they do hold great wisdom and insight, and, and I think that we'll, we should do a sermon series maybe on Leviticus someday. We'll see the gospel. We'll see Christ in Leviticus. But it's true. We're freed from that. So go ahead and order a soft-shell crab sandwich with a side of pork rinds served with a milkshake uh, next Sunday. That's okay. That's about as unkosher a meal as I could come up with on, on short notice. That's okay. But the timeless holy, unchanging, infallible, inerrant moral law does apply to all believers as Jesus has said to us that we are now obligated not only to live by it, but I'm obligated to teach it. I'm obligated and the elders of our church are obligated to hold us accountable. That's why we always lose when we ignore or violate God's law. How many of us, when we were kids, did something pretty stupid? Can you raise your hand? Good. We were all, we're all true. A kid sees uh, the roof line. It looks like about 20 feet off the ground down to that nice soft snow and wonders, I wonder if I jump off that roof if the snow will break my fall. And soon, in landing, realizes that the snow could not hold him up. In the same way that we cannot break the laws of gravity, the natural laws, when we break God's moral, perfect, utterly unchanging moral law, we always lose. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now imagine the look on the people's faces when they heard Jesus say these words. Scribes and Pharisees were the meticulous keepers of the law. They were the most zealous of all in being righteous. So the people thought, how is this possible? No one else but the scribes and the Pharisees can live to this perfect standard of obeying all of the laws. What is Jesus asking of us? But Jesus says to them, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees in order to go to heaven. What is he saying here? The only way to have a true righteousness, that religious affections we've been talking about, is to go beyond the phony externalism of the scribes and Pharisees to an inward righteousness. And that is an inward righteousness that comes when the Spirit of God enters in and brings new life and makes your heart beat like it's never beat before. It's a gift of God. The Word of God is based, the Word of God is the basis for a righteous standard that God has never changed. When Jesus came, he didn't abrogate the Old Testament, he just restated it in an absolute binding way. But then he followed it up by saying, I am going to give to you my spirit. That's why I've come. And you know what? Because he fulfilled the righteous, perfect standards of a holy, living God, you know what? We can too. We can too 
you and I, living in Christ, we can live out all the standards that God sets forth in his word. That's most amazing of all. Because he was perfectly righteous, because he fulfilled all righteousness, we can too. Romans 8 verse 4 puts it this way. The righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after what? After the spirit. You see? We can fulfill the moral law when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we fail, and we will, and every Sunday we come back, and every day we come back to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness, he is quick and just to forgive. The law itself couldn't make anyone righteous. Nobody could meet God's holy standard. So Jesus had to come and do what the law could not do to impart his righteousness to us. And that's why he says, I have come. He says it twice, I have come. When we put our faith in Christ, we take on his righteousness. The Bible says that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And then by the Holy Spirit, we continue in that righteousness. And that's when a born-again believer, even though you fail and you trip and you stagger and you do stupid things like jumping off high buildings and testing God's limits, he says you're still accepted. Not on account of what you did or what you could possibly ever do, but because of my son. The righteousness demanded by Jesus Christ is nothing less than complete conformity with God's holy law in all that we are and all that we do, but it's a matter of heart condition, not degree of perfection, heart condition. Let me give you an example. Cheryl and I celebrating our 16th wedding anniversary. And I make plans to, to pick up flowers. I'm going to spend a lot of money on those flowers. I'm going to go to the best floor shop in town. Pick up those flowers. I, I come home and I knock on the door. Now, of course, we're in an apartment, so there's only one door. But there used to be two, which I never, I just let myself in. But just go with me. I knock on the door on our anniversary. And she opens the door and she says, oh, honey, you shouldn't have. Oh, those are so wonderful. And I say, here are your flowers. I am obligated by law to give you these once a year. <laughs> I'm sure you will enjoy them. Thank you. Thank you. How do you think she's going to react? I spent a lot of money on those flowers. Let's rewind the tape. I want to show her uh, my, my affection and my love. I pick up flowers at Safeway. I peel off that little sticker that they put on there and just why do they put those stickers on that can't be removed without but I try my best I clean it up I, I wash off the, the dirt and I get home and I knock on the front door and she opens honey you shouldn't have I said I couldn't help myself I love you so much and this is just a little token of my affection for you do you see the difference that's what your heavenly father wants from you not the big flashiness, not trying to meet some standard that you'll never meet. He wants you. He wants your heart and your gratitude and your devotion. 
the kind of works righteousness the Pharisees had will never cut it. Their rule following was external. It was based on traditions of men. But the good works that Pastor Andy called us to last week at the end of of the passage that he read last week, those good works are about our gratitude to the Lord for all that he's done for us. And I'll end with this. You will never make it into heaven by your self-effort. Remember where we started. Remember where Jesus started. We are spiritually bankrupt. Until we receive his credit into our account, we have nothing, nothing to offer. We must trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And let me ask you this final question. Have you found the Lord Jesus Christ in the book? Have you found him in the book and given your life to him? Because there are things yet to be completed. There's a word for you in, his, in the Bible. Promises to be kept. Truths to be lived out. Have you met the Lord Jesus in the word? In the smallest of words. Because everything we need has been written here and now written on our hearts. He alone can enable you to fulfill God's law and empower you in such a way that your character will be like his. If you haven't, if you haven't fully given your life to Christ or or if you're just ignoring God's word to you, I invite you this day to say, Lord, come again by your Holy Spirit. That the words on the page, the spirit you've put in my life, would move me in such a way that I'd be filled with gratitude and joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you alone can enable us to to match this standard of righteousness. It's impossible on our own. And yet, Lord, even as we fail and trip and make poor decisions, you remind us that your word is a lamp unto our feet. Lord, your word is written on our hearts. We need the Bible, Lord, to meditate on it, to memorize it. Bring it into our lives, Lord, in fresh new ways, into our homes, into discussion at the dinner table. Your word to us, Lord, is reliable and infallible. Your gospel is true. Protect us from false teaching that your word would never change. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Friends, let's stand together and sing. What an appropriate hymn. Printed in your bulletin, God's word has shown from age to age.